Our voices, our choices. The feminist podcast from the Heinrich Boll Foundation. What development brings us may be livelihoods and economic transformation, but it is really violating the whole ecology, the whole social, the whole political dimensions of life. Current debates about a feminist development policy and a decolonial development policy can be very worthwhile and useful endeavors, very progressive endeavors. It depends on what type of feminism, what type of decolonization are we talking about. And that's why it became increasingly important to start bringing to the fore this work on racial justice alongside decolonization, because not not only was it necessary to decolonize our, our external practice, but it became also increasingly important to start to decolonize the internal narrative that was shaping a lot of the work in all of these organizations. Welcome to a new five-part series on feminist development policy called A Pathway Towards Feminist Global Collaboration. This new series seeks to contribute to the current debate on feminist development and foreign policy in Germany by building and strengthening feminist visions and alternatives to what is commonly understood as international development. I'm your host, Sammy Blassingame, and I will be guiding you over the course of five episodes as we explore how feminist approaches can challenge the current development narrative and pave the way towards a collaborative and solidarity-based practice rooted in gender, racial, environmental, and economic justice. Considering the many social and environmental challenges we are facing globally, namely the increase of natural disasters and other impacts of the climate crisis, such as a lack of safe and legal migration policies, the growing gap in wealth disparities within over-resourced societies and between poorer and wealthier ones, as well as the dismantlement of human rights achievements for both women, non-binary people, and the LGBTIQ community, or indigenous communities losing access to their lands and thus their livelihoods. It is critical that we reflect on our methods of global interaction and the underlying ideas that drive them in order to put alternative models of collaboration and leadership into practice. So on behalf of an emerging network of practitioners aiming to rethink development policy from a feminist perspective, Fair Share of Women Leaders, a feminist nonprofit initiative to advance gender equity in the nonprofit world, and the Heinrich Boll Foundation, I invite you to listen along as we rethink, reflect, and learn with and from people from the LGBTIQ community, Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities, and grassroots activists in the Global South, people whose voices have long been excluded and marginalized in the development sector. Each episode will be accompanied by a set of recommendations for development practitioners and decision makers, both in English and German. With this framework, we hope to widen the scope of our impact beyond the broadcasting of this podcast and share practical and achievable steps forward with which each individual actor and every one of you listening can support a process of transformation within current institutions and organizations, both in the development sector and beyond. You will be able to find these recommendations on the Heinrich Boll website, as well as the Fair Share homepage. We will include links to both in the show notes. So for this episode, to kick things off and make sure we're all on the same page, we spoke with three people who for many years have been grappling with critical questions concerning international development, both in theory and in practice. The first person we spoke with was Shrishti Bashpi, an activist researcher based in Mumbai, who shared some thoughts on the consequences of development programs as they currently stand. 
So the kind of a development project, at least um, borrowed from the West, um, that we see also here in South Asia, India, is that this idea that we have to have development at all cost, um, be it human cost, be it nature cost, be it at um, livelihood cost, this conception of what is development is, is never people's conception of development. It is people who have power decide what is development for for a large number of people. And so the current form of a development, uh, which is based on extractivism, which is based on um, taking away people's land, also extremely unjust in many ways to certain caste, so certain genders. Then we know that how many of environmental defenders, human rights defenders who have fought against this kind of a development have also faced um, existential threats. They have been killed, um, they have been uh, repressed, uh, they have been put in jail. So in very clear terms, we see this clash of worldviews where there is one group of people who feel what is development for a certain group of people and then there's another group of people who say we don't want this kind of thing to be pushed upon us. An example of this that Trichy shared was from Rabuti, India, about 30 years ago, when an indigenous community called the Adivasi organized to resist a dam project. Now, the reason behind that dam protest was that they didn't want their mother, which they considered Indravati as their mother, to be dammed or diverted. Uh, whereas uh, people who were proposing the dams uh, were giving them various lucrative offers saying that you will get the jobs, you will get livelihoods and we will give you lands where you can go and live. But just leave this region and let the river go dam and we'll compensate you adequately. So their vision of development, which right after India's independence in 1947, was that dams are the temples of modern India. With that one gets a sense of that development is violent because it displaces all these people from their lands, from their homes. Um, it displaces the species who are living in that river. It really kills the right of the river to flow freely. So that's why I call it violence. It is violence against peoples. It is a violence against rest of nature. Um, when we are talking about things like development and policy, we kind of forget that it is about people and people's lives and uh, really about their everyday lives and everyday struggles. Indeed, for many years, the narratives, policies, and projects created and implemented under the framework of development have been criticized by activists, practitioners, and scholars such as Gustavo Esteva, Uma Kuthari, Maria Lugones, as well as many others who have been on the receiving end of such endeavors as being too technical, often Eurocentric, and ultimately ineffective in influencing change on an institutional level. As an expert on developmental critique, Professor Dr. Aram Ziai, who leads the Department of Development Policy and Postcolonial Studies at the University of Kassel, was able to illustrate some of the core problems related to the concept of international development, namely the power imbalances that underpin and perpetuate them. If, if development is actually mm, something linked to a good society, to improvement and progress, etc., um, then who is legitimately defining how it is? Actually, to talk about developed and less developed societies is already um, an exertion of power, is already defining a universal scale and defining your own society standing at the top of it. The very standards according to which this field is structured already have this Eurocentric bias, which ultimately derives from the colonial idea that our society is um, the ideal, is the norm, 
and other societies which are different are not merely different, but they are backward, they are deficient. Yeah, I think it is important to think about it because this discourse of development is the, the primary means by which we imagine the South from the perspective of the North and the relation between North and South. Um, we imagine it in terms of development, in terms of a universal scale where some are more progressed and others are lagging behind. As Dr. Zi went on to explain, development as a concept and practice originated in the middle of the 20th century, spurred by Cold War fears of anti-colonial socialist movements growing in the newly independent countries of the Global South. At the time, the Truman presidency in the United States saw the containment of communism as its prime imperative, and so the artificial division of global society as either developed or underdeveloped became its solution to maintain U.S. hegemony culturally and politically. New technologies were to be transferred to the underdeveloped countries so that they could advance and aspire to a U.S. American ideal, ultimately hindering alternative visions of what else life could be. So and this was the, the onset of what could be called anti-colonial imperialism of the U.S. So the endeavor to maintain and gain access to the resources of the Global South, to the markets of the Global South. So the basic idea was um, poverty reduction and doing business in the South are not mutually exclusive. They can be combined. And this is the basic thinking which still underlies um, most um, attempts of official development policy. And this is empirically, um, well, questionable. <laughs> so the idea that um, poverty can be defeated within global capitalism through mechanisms of the market, and this has had um, fatal consequences. Acknowledging this sordid history of development practice and its inability to bring about global equity to the degree it promised, the new coalition government in Germany is now seeking to apply feminist approaches to different policy areas, starting with a feminist foreign policy that was agreed to in the coalition contract. To the surprise of many, the development ministry, BMZ, now aims to follow this example by declaring its ambition towards a feminist development policy and is currently in the process of defining its strategy, which is why it's so important to acknowledge the danger of certain phrases or perspectives entering into the mainstream narrative when they're actually void of meaning. For example, participatory development, localization, or empowerment that have been championed in the sector throughout the years. But what happens when organizations appropriate these terms without truly integrating their meanings into practice? This is something Saranel Benjamin, head of partnerships at Oxfam Great Britain, has experienced firsthand, both as an anti-apartheid activist from South Africa and now being based in the Global North in one of the largest international NGOs. The first main thing that happens is you turn these concepts into uh, rhetoric. They become completely depoliticized, neutralized, and they become, you know, nice to have things that are printed out on A3 paper and stuck on, on walls as, you know, principles to follow. And so there's a tendency to say, oh, well, we've got these principles now, feminist principles, we're a very progressive organization because we've got them. So in the spaces of policy, for example, in the spaces of strategy, in the spaces of um, even looking at our practice and our systems, 
you don't get feminist principles showing up in there. Or even racial justice and decolonization, they're, you know, they're all, all part of it together. So, for example, when I came into, into Oxfam, uh, there, were, there was a proud proudness or pride uh, taken as to, the, as to how diverse they were. But when you look, when you actually look at the data, black and people of color only made up 12% of the organization. So their their issue around diversity was that they had they had managed to get in more women into the organization, and when you look a little bit closer, it was actually white women. So you know, very proudly saying we have more more women leaders than ever before. And then when you look closely, it's the the only black or woman of color that are there is myself and maybe one other person. Sarnel's experience in the sector spans over 25 years, and her work has often incorporated many of the social justice concepts that have been popularized yet misappropriated by well-meaning practitioners in the field. I remember first talking about decolonization about three years ago. For a moment, you know, people reacted like, oh, what is that that she's talking about? Slight bit of fear, but then it became easy. And I was wondering why was it becoming easy for my peers in the organization when I'm talking about something that's very, very radical at the heart of it, because we are talking about disrupting white power, essentially, and who's controlling that power. So why is it becoming, why is it so easy? And there's a tendency in international development to make everything technical. So transforming really radical, transformative political agendas into checklists, toolkits, uh, roadmaps to start with, and you've completely neutralized it. You've sucked all the politics out, and you've basically left with something that's going to be used as a tool that is largely instrumentalized. You've instrumentalized decolonization and racial justice. That's not what decolonization is about. If done right with the racial justice framework, it does have a radical transformative agenda that is seeking for the self-determination and autonomy of those in the global south. We will talk more about what it will take to avoid treating decolonization as a checklist later in this episode and throughout the series. But first, let's hear again from Professor Dr. Aram Ziai, who is also concerned about the development sector prioritizing what he calls window dressing instead of systemic transformation, such as a critique or a reimagination of global capitalism. From the perspective of post-colonial, decolonial perspectives, we could ask, okay, um, is it also a question of decolonizing the global economy? And how far do colonial structures in the international division of labor, in trade policy, and how far are they also affected of such a feminist or decolonial development policy? And if this is not the case, then I'm a bit worried that, that we're again talking about window dressing. And then feminist development policy or a decolonial development policy would be, again, part of what I call the, the cycle of development, so which exists since the middle of the 20th century and with, starts with a diagnosis of a deficit. Oh, the South is poor. Oh, but we can help them with economic growth, with technological progress. They will become developed. This is the promise of development. And this promise is being reiterated again and again since the end of the 1960s with ever new recipes. So the latest recipe then could be feminist development policy. However, what is not being touched upon is um, 
the mechanism which produces global inequality, and this is capitalism. And if this is not being taken serious, then um, yeah, then then I think um, we're talking about a fig leaf, um, which which should then um, cover up the massive transfer of resources, which goes from the poor countries to the rich countries. And this transfer of resources amounts currently to roughly a net transfer of one thousand billion U.S. dollars per year. And behind the curtain of this massive transfer of wealth, the narrative around participation and empowerment has gained significant traction, leaving many with the impression that development is something co-created by various actors to the benefit of the most vulnerable and historically marginalized. Unfortunately, this is seldom true. And to provide a bit more context, Dr. Zi shared an aspect of international development structures that can explain why programs committed to popular buzzwords often struggle to evolve past a certain point. So participation and um, ownership and empowerment is actually nothing radically new. Uh, the point is that it always encounters limits. And these limits then, then are reached when the, the donor actually says, yeah, but still we want to control what is being done with the money because we have a responsibility towards our taxpayers. You reach the limits of participation or the limits of ownership or of, of empowerment because the, the, the donor then insists of controlling what, what is being done with the money. Yeah, and I think this is where we, we encounter also global structures, um, not only of capitalism, but also of a nation state system which sees the role of politicians as the defense of interests of their constituency, the people in Germany, the Germans, vis-a-vis um, the interests of other people in the world. And with this kind of policy, you, you will not defeat global inequality. You will be, yeah, you will always be defending the interests of the privileged, of the rich. Indeed, a dominant paradigm in international development sees the creation of development programs tied to the benefits they will bring to the country of origin, rather than seeking increased global well-being in general. For example, the elimination of global poverty in order to avoid war and continued flows of migration to Europe. But as Dr. Zi explains, we need to overcome this type of thinking and instead seek a cosmopolitanism that is serious about global citizenship. Otherwise, we risk remaining within the parameters of global capitalism on the one hand and nation states on the other. Dr. Zi shared that although short-lived, there was once an approach applied by the BMZ that sought to shift global power structures, and that a new law in Germany also aims to acknowledge global interconnectedness and correct unjust dependencies, and therefore could be seen as a step in the right direction for the country's implementation of its feminist endeavor. The red-green German government with Vitorek Zoll, 98 to 2005, actually attempted to change global structures for, um, for the benefit of the marginalized population in the world. And, and this, I think, was a really, was with a great approach, which was then um, very difficult to implement because, um, because of precisely these limits, because when the minister of Vitorekt Soil actually said, okay, look, we need to change global structures so that the marginalized population in the global south will benefit more from the global economy. Her colleagues in the Ministry of Agriculture and in the Ministry of the Economy said, what, are you, are you mad? We, we, we're supposed here, we're supposed to represent the interests of the German industry and you are telling us not to do our job? And so already within the government at that stage, there were um, severe conflicts and the attempt then to 
change these global structures in the interest of the global poor was defeated at the outset and achieved only small successes. One, one could say that the value chain law, the Lieferkettengesetz, is actually a step in this direction. Yeah, and here also the industrial lobby has managed to water down some of the, some of the more progressive elements. But this is precisely what it's about. This would, this would be a step towards a global structural policy if we managed to pursue this direction that the global economy would be changed in such a way um, that responsibility for, yeah, for, for our production and our consumption um, would be improved on a global level. This value or supply chain law is one of the ways Europe is seeking to ensure human rights are embedded in its supply chain system. It aims to curb the business-as-usual practices of European companies that prioritize profit over people and planet. Laws like this can help address the capitalist and extractive structures that maintain global power imbalances. But what about dismantling our understandings of what it means to quote-unquote develop? What it means to help others achieve a so-called good life? Shristi shares an example from her work in a community that risks losing their current lifestyles due to a mining project in their region. So, for example, I asked this um, woman living in one of the communities struggling against a mining project, and I asked her, what is what is a good life? What is a well-being for you? Uh, how would you define it? She said, our life is good only. I mean, we have fresh water, um, we have fresh air, it's not as polluted as where you live, um, we grow our own food, um, we have our community, we celebrate, we dance, that's that's good life for me. And of course, this mining that is happening is, is basically going to destroy all this. Um, and we don't want it. We don't want our waters to be ruined. We don't want our forests to go. And we want to have this life. And and that's when one understands that well-being or development is, is so much more than just um, bringing a road. Of course, they say that they need road, but they don't need four-lane highways. Um, they just need a road to access maybe a hospital. They need basic education, but not something that eliminates their own sense of identity, something that is more relatable, that is grounded in their own ecology of the place. So with this background and understanding of the ideas and limitations that have been perpetuated in the international development sector over the years, the question remains how a feminist perspective could interrupt this dynamic and help us think differently about development. But first, what exactly is a feminist perspective in this context? It's difficult to say it, what a feminist perspective is because there's just so many perspectives. And um, and I guess that's the work of alternatives of bringing in a lot of uh, pluriverse of ideas and articulations of what it really means to change. But I think what is essential is that how do we bring in those important voices in the conversations as much as we can and then various visions and perspectives emerge. Uh, what it might look in development policy is changing the way our economy is. You learn from um, from the women here in central India that economy cannot be something that is just based on profits. Economy has to be based on economy of share and care, um, of, of, of localized economy, of respecting 
um, rights of nature, respecting the other species in the forest. So in very um, concrete terms, I think that's what emerges from um, people's struggles, women's struggles in protecting their territories, which can inform the development aid policy. Um, it's also about the way we organize our own gatherings and meetings. Um, it's also a sense of, um, you know, just changing the inner discourse of things. Um, how do we talk about things that affects, affect us about everyday life? Um, we're not too um, task-oriented, but rather process-oriented. I think these are very, very um, I, sometimes often ignored, but extremely important for network building, for space building, because they really affect us. If we don't talk about our feelings and traumas in spaces and gatherings we belong to, we, um, we tend to ignore them. In fact, the whole concept of global collaboration, as opposed to cooperation, as we're aiming to outline in this series, is rooted in a commitment to bringing a variety of voices and perspectives into the conversation and then prioritizing the new visions that emerge from it. And as Trishti has pointed out, there is a range of interpretations as to what feminism is and what it looks like in practice something Sarnel has also experienced in her transition from doing this work in the Global South versus now in the Global North. I had, I had my own understanding of what feminist development policy or politics was in South Africa. And when I came to the UK and uh, I started to engage with a predominantly majority white uh, northern-based INGOs, um, their understanding of feminism and feminist principles was very different uh, to our, our understanding in the Global South. Coming from South Africa, our, we had one very strong understanding of what feminism meant, and it had, you know, it strongly centered uh, black and women of color. So the feminism that I saw emerging in these spaces, in the northern, uh, northern INGO space, was white feminism. It was not black feminism you know, we never articulated uh, our work as as being um, gaining parity uh, with with men's. It always went so much further than that, and I think that maybe that is because um, our feminism came from the apartheid struggle. It, you know, feminist principles was for the whole organization. It was something that was internal. Uh, it was about the way in which we related to each other as 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 people. Uh, it was more of a, it was more values than an actual political struggle. Widening the scope of what such terms mean and how they should be applied in practice has been an ongoing challenge for Sarnel over the years. When I came into Oxfam GB, again, intersectionality was not mentioned in feminist principles. Everything was intersecting except race. Uh, so, you know, it was geography, geographical location, education, um, you know, economic status, etc., disability, but nothing on race. And having to kind of bring race into the center of feminist principles was a huge, huge struggle. Um, and so it started to coincide uh, with our work on decolonization and racial justice uh, that we started to uh, hammer home quite strongly that there was a need for intersectionality to be at the center of, ev of everything that we were doing. Um, and now we're at the point where we are taking an intersectional approach to our gender justice and women's rights programming, uh, which wasn't there before. Intersectionality stems from Black feminist thought and was articulated as a concept by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. 
It is meant to help visualize the multiple oppressions an individual may face in a world shaped by race, gender, class, and other social categorizations, which are all interconnected and often overlap to create interdependent systems of discrimination and disadvantage. Recognizing that one's multiple identities define how they are seen, treated, and therefore experience the world is key toward achieving more global equity. That's why an intersectional feminist approach is central to our endeavors toward global collaboration. So the reason why intersectionality is important is because it goes, it forces us to place at the center of our analysis uh, the issue of, of, of race and the experiences specifically of black and women, black indigenous and women of color for whom we sit in the north and design programs for. If you don't take an intersectional approach to uh, to this, uh, firstly, we don't include the voices of Black, Indigenous, and women of color at the center center of it. We don't we don't include their experiences, and we begin to design solutions based on what we think, as people based in the north think is appropriate uh, for for those. Um, and as a result of that, we completely miss uh, these intersecting and multi layered experiences of oppression uh, that Black, Indigenous, and women of color experience. And so this concept of feminist global collaboration that we will continue to explore in this series must include an intersectional approach, one that produces autonomy and self-determination for all involved and allows for the space and time needed to reach a consensus that respects the needs and desires of those most affected. How brilliant would it be if uh, if we had... Um people in the global north just stepping aside uh, and letting black and women of color. And when I mean, you know, women, I'm including trans people as well in this. How brilliant would it be if we, you know, we just got out of the way uh, and just centered black uh, indigenous women and trans people at the heart of what we do? It sounds simple, but international development has a long way to go before it can actually start to relinquish that colonial control and, and distrust that exists between the global north and the global south. It's not geared towards self-determination and autonomy of the global south at all. Um, and when I'm talking about global south, I'm talking about black and women of color, indigenous women of color and trans people in who are also living in the global north uh, or what a different space this would look like. But we're not there yet. As our incredible guests have shown, the question of bringing feminist values to what we call international development is not about adding on something. It's about completely deconstructing the assumptions that drive business as usual and transforming the structures that shape development in their current state. If this sounds like a lot of work, you're right, but that's why we're here to explore and iron out what such a vision could look like and get really concrete about what realizing that vision would entail. Some initial steps include questioning and analyzing the structures we've built in the global north and where they are perpetuating colonialism, racism, the patriarchy, and unjust economic structures. Involving grassroots organizations and community organizers in the global south directly in decision-making processes toward a new collaboration model and also shifting financial resources directly to local feminist organizations. In upcoming episodes, we will be discussing topics like the power of knowledge and progressive funding methods, as well as diving deeper into what intersectionality can look like for the sector. 
we encourage all of you listening to embrace and reflect on any discomfort that may arise as we discuss these topics and explore how they intersect with concepts such as sexism, racism, colonialism, and white privilege, and to work through that discomfort to ultimately understand the impact of certain actions, even when our intentions are pure. Don't forget that with each episode, we will be publishing recommendations which we hope can help you and your colleagues take practical steps towards feminist global collaborations. You can find those at www.fairsharewl.org or www.boll.de. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at fair underscore WL and at bowl underscore gender. That's B-O-E-L-L underscore gender. We would like to end each episode with a quote by an activist, scholar, or practitioner. Today, that's with a wonderful quote from Gustavo Esteva. On that day, two billion people became underdeveloped. From that time on, they ceased being what they were and all their diversity and were transformed into an inverted mirror of another's reality a mirror that belittles them and sends them to the end of the queue, a mirror that defines their identity, which is really that of a heterogeneous and diverse majority, simply in the terms of a homogenizing and narrow minority. This has been a podcast of Our Voices, Our Choices, in the series A Pathway Towards Feminist Global Collaboration. You can find this and other episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in the app of your choice. Help us spread the word by rating us and recommending us to others. You can also send us feedback and suggestions at podcast at bowl, that's B-O-E-L-L dot D-E. Audio for this podcast was produced by Gretsch and directed by me, your host, Sammy Blassingame. Thanks so much for listening and see you here next time.